Welcome to China in Context, Episode 9. I'm Duncan Bartlett. All children are precious. But in China, when parents have only one child, they might well regard that son or daughter as extra precious. Because of the one-child policy, which ran from 1979 to 2016, millions of people have grown up without brothers or sisters, especially in urban China. The media uses terms like little emperors or little empresses, suggesting that they can be very spoiled. But they also face unique pressures, especially when it comes to passing exams and getting jobs. Joining me now to talk through this issue is Professor Jie Yu Liu, Deputy Director of the SOAS China Institute, University of London. Jie Yu, welcome back. So, why did you become particularly interested in studying this issue? Are you yourself an only child? Um, yes, I grew up in urban China, so I am an only child. The reason why I'm interested in this issue is because a lot of the attention from the West is put on the economic and the political state of China because China has become the second largest economic entity in the world. But less is known about the dramatic social changes that are taking place in China. So I'm currently doing this project, examining the changes and the continuities in various aspects of family life across three generations in both urban and rural China. The relations between children and their parents are an integral part of the family life. Well, it sounds like a very worthwhile area of study. Um, let's talk a bit about Chinese history. In the past, children were often seen as an economic asset because they could work on a farm or they could do domestic work around the house. Could you tell us something about the history of the family in China? In pre-modern China, the concept of filial piety served as the guiding principle for socialization in Confucian families. Children were generally ascribed a subordinate, humble and inferior status. And there was a quite rigid and hierarchical structure practiced within the family. During my own research, I found that for the generation who were born in the 1930s and 1940s, actually they took on a variety of tasks from the age of four or five. For example, helping with household chores, providing care to younger siblings and older relatives, and also assisting with parents' work. So you mentioned there this ancient concept of filial piety. How does the idea then of filial piety relate to the one-child policy? Filial piety is an ancient concept. It is also a gendered concept because filial piety emphasized the filial obligations of sons. As Chinese women are supposed to move into their husband's family upon marriage, Filial piety actually placed married daughters on the filial map of their in-laws. Therefore, infanticide of female babies were quite common in pre-modern China. During the period, the one-child policy was implemented as there was no state pension and sons remained significant for rural parents. In a way, filial piety had contributed to the use of gender-selective abortion in rural China. 
I see. So talking about the children that survived then, um, since the 1990s, the Chinese media has been using terms such as little emperors or little empresses uh, to describe children who come from families with uh, only one child. That suggests that they were very spoiled. Is that actually the case? Were they spoiled? Yes and no. I think there are two aspects I like to emphasize. First, the only children generation were born in a year where China's living standards improved considerably in compare with the earlier generations. So the urban single children did not need to do any household chores and never experienced the hunger or the hardship that the previous generation had encountered. Even after they get married, many of them still rely upon their parents or in-laws to provide the household helps. For example, the old interviewees told me that their married children brought dirty clothes every week to them for cleaning, and every day their married children would come to their place for meals, as the young couples did not know how to cook themselves. And such intergenerational patterns are very common in urban families. On the other hand, the only child generation grew up in an environment with an unprecedented emphasis on academic study. And the children's life has become routinized and regimented around the priority to study with everything else secondary and supportive of this ultimate aim. This obsession with children's academic studies clouded much of the parent-child interactions for this generation. Unlike the early generations who received the beatings from parents because their failure to perform household chores, the discipline and the punishment experienced by the only child generation centered around academic study. Well, I want to come on to some of those topics about uh, exams and, and, and discipline a bit further on in our conversation. But let's just stay with the one child policy for now. From the point of view of the Communist Party, was there a political reason behind this? Was it easier to get children from that kind of background to be loyal to the party? No, I don't think one-child policy was politically motivated. It was for economic reason. I mean, the rationale for implementing the one-child policy was to reduce the growth rate of China's enormous population so as to prioritize China's economic development. So let's talk about uh, women and the age at which they start families and give birth. Could you say something about the average age at which women in China give birth now? And, and how's that different from previous generations of women? According to the 2010 China census, I mean, the national average age Chinese women gave birth is 29 years, an increase of three years from the result of 2000 national census. And according to my own life history research, I found that the women born in the 1910s, they normally gave birth around the age of 17 or 18. So this is a significant change in comparison with early generations. Well, it really is a significant change, isn't it? Particularly if we're talking about uh, that change even within the last decade. So w with parents who live in urban China, in the cities, do they still expect their children to look after them when they grow up and the parents get old? Are the children in a position to help them? 
Financially, urban parents generally do not expect their children to provide economic support, as most of them have a state pension. However, regarding the instrumental support and day-to-day -day care, urban parents do still expect their children to look after them in old age. First, the level of socialization of care remains still quite low in China. And there are some stories of elite families, for example, the former government officials and fellows of the Academy of Science, they have very um, good access to those uh, high quality institutional care. But for ordinary families, they found it quite difficult to access or afford a good quality old age home. Second, there is still general distrust of care services provided by non-familiar members. So, Jiu, when I think about China, I often think it's a much less individualistic society than my own country, the United Kingdom. How much individual freedom do children from one-child families have? Are they allowed to follow their own personal choices in terms of education, in terms of career, and in terms of dating and who they get married to? In terms of the material surroundings, the only child generation had a lot of freedom in choosing what kind of material things they wanted to have as a child, compared with the earlier generations. However, individual freedom in terms of how one lives a life is far much limited. My research found there are normally three patterns. First, once the children had satisfied their parents' goal, the ultimate goal being to enter the university the child would gain kind of a bargaining power from negotiating with their parents and also gained a level of autonomy for how they would like to live their lives. The second pattern was a constant process of negotiation between autonomy and obedience in the interactions with their parents. The final group still did not manage to gain their individual autonomy beyond the childhood stage I remember vividly the frustration from this lady in Xi'an. She was born in 1989. Her parents influenced her choice of occupation as well as dating and marriage choice. Now she wanted a divorce, but dare not to, because she knew her parents would not agree to it. So you touched on this subject of exams earlier on. Could you say something more about how the exam system in China affects childhood and education? In pre-modern China, the civil service exams were designed to choose people to work in the government based on merit rather than on family status. Therefore, exams had a very long history in China and were deeply ingrained into the Chinese educational system. Since primary school, children had a lot of exam experiences. And also, normally after each exam, there would be a ranking of scores to generate a kind of peer pressure in the school. And then the exam's result would be passed on to the parents. Therefore, this overwhelming emphasis on academic study at school and at home is a key feature of contemporary childhood in China. Right, well, students study hard. Is there more pressure on girls to do well in the exams than there is for boys? I don't think so in the school setting. There is no gender difference in terms of educational expectations in single boy and single girl families. However, in some exam assessment for job recruitment, due to the gender discrimination in the Chinese labor market, 
women sometimes have to achieve a higher score than men in order to be accepted in certain occupations. Let's talk about discipline. What happens when children are naughty at home or at school in today's China? Is it regarded as okay to beat them or to use physical violence as a form of punishment? Well, it is illegal to beat children in school or at home in today's China, but culturally it is acceptable for parents to use physical violence as a form of punishment and education. There is an old Chinese saying, spare the rod and spoil the child. Therefore, in the private space of a home, there would be some cases of beating children. However, I found that as a result of the one-child policy, the emotional value of children has dramatically increased in China. Therefore, urban parents I talk to, they prefer to use the scolding rather than beating as a way of punishment. Well, I should think their children are very relieved about that. Um, a last question then. We've talked about the pressure that uh, children from one child families face. Um, do you think that's one of the reasons why some children become withdrawn? Is that why they can't stop looking at their mobile phones all the time? Well, yes, some children would become withdrawn or sometimes even depressed because this pressure from their parents. And there are some newspaper reports in the Chinese media about those tragic stories of middle school children committing suicide. However, I think the mobile phone use is a separate phenomenon. You see all over around the world that adults, both adults and the children, are increasingly using mobile phones. It is not just a China thing. Sure. Well, I probably use my mobile phone a bit too much as well. Thanks very much indeed, Jiayu, for talking us through that fascinating issue. That's Professor Jiayu Liu, the Deputy Director of the SOAS China Institute at the University of London. And you can find out more about the university's courses on our website. Just go to soas.ac.uk. SOAS is spelled S-O-A-S. Or you could type SOAS China Institute into a search engine and it should pop up straight away. But for now, that's all from us here at the China in Context podcast.